Hey everybody and welcome to uh, the Open Forum podcast. So here we have with us Tiffany Toulouse. Tiffany is a, a nurse uh, practitioner. Practitioner. Uh, she has her master's and is currently working on a PhD. She has up until very recently been working in the critical care units uh, in Canada. And um, we're just going to get right into it. Tiffany, why don't you take two, three minutes and just tell us who you are, how you came to where you are today. And then we're going to dive on in into your experiences and your research, what you've seen, what you found. And yeah, we'll just go from there. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so my name's Tiffany. Um, I want to just clarify, I was in my nurse practitioner for my master's. I didn't finish it because I didn't write my national licensing exam, but I did bridge into a PhD. So um, as you said, I've been a registered nurse for nine years. The first two years were in uh, med surge, and I floated across 12 different units to just increase and expedite all my learning. Um, and then for the last seven before being terminated, I was uh, in critical care in the ER, ICU, trauma, uh, recovery room, kind of just floated amongst all of those different units. And I was also, which we'll talk more in depth about, um, on the rapid response team for rapid sequence intubation of COVID patients. Um, and uh, so they acknowledged my skill set back then. And then I was still terminated in uh, December 1st of 2021. So yeah, we, you know, I, uh, we, you and I talked before a recording with the things that we wanted to chat about and yeah, and we can talk about like what I'm seeing. So lived experiences, you know, states of cognitive dissonance and, you know, what this means for our country, the impacts it's had on healthcare um, and kind of what, you know, what's going on in Canada now. So yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, no, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for your time. Look, why don't we start there? What has it been like? working on the wards during the COVID pandemic. Um, obviously, you've seen influenza uh, hit the wards, hit the hospitals in the years prior to 2020. Um, how does it compare for you in what's occurred and how we've handled it in the medical establishment? And, and yeah, go from there. Yeah, so it's it's really it's a really interesting topic. So I have to I have to say before COVID, before the, the pandemic, um, the hospital systems in Canada, in Ontario particularly, where we have it's documented this is a fact the worst patient ratios to nurse uh, ratio. So point is is we were already in a very dangerous, uh, you know, uh, very vulnerable healthcare already. So you know, add this. <laughs> you were almost, it was almost like we were going, to, we were bound to see it fail because, you know, none of the steps uh, were taken to address capacity at the hospital. And that to me was very, very strange. So fast forward in, in March of 2020, we, the whole world gets the announcement, you know, and healthcare is all on board because we don't know what we're dealing with. And um, I was even on board because I'm like, hey, we, I agreed with the first lockdown. I was like, we do need a lockdown. We need science to catch up. We need time and science to catch up with each other. All on board. We're waiting. You know, we're at the hospital on top of already being a super stressed system. We were fighting for things like getting PPE in. We had no PPE. We had no respirators. We had, you know, and we're hearing nurses, doctors falling by the hundreds, you know, in Italy. And so the fear is ramping up. So you're dealing with already a poor establishment with tons of holes, tons of staffing issues already to begin with, poor ratios, tack into a fear-based pandemic where you're like, crap, 
Now the fear is so bad, we have no PPE. So everything was stacked against healthcare. So, you know, a lot of us though, being in healthcare, you usually are a pretty resilient individual. Um, I don't think that a lot of people get into healthcare for the money because it's not really about the money. It's just not there. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, we strapped in our boots, like we found our strength. We're like, we are here to help and serve our community. We are going to be pro lockdowns. We are the heroes. And it was great because it finally united, um, you know, community with healthcare saying like, it's about time people start recognizing how, like how tough this job is. And so that's for me is how I fell into the narrative. I was like, you know, there was no time to exercise critical thinking because you were so terrified. You were fighting with your hospital administrators for PPE and you're getting all of the news and all of the, you know, data from other countries saying like people are falling by the dozens, the hundreds. So, you know, I was all on board. I'm not going to lie. I was all on board. And so much so that um, they created a rapid response team for rapid sequence intubation of COVID patients. And so again, I got selected. I was one of uh, five nurses in the entire organization that got selected for this and happy to do it because that's what the country does. That's what nurses do. You answer the call. So we're dealing with all of this stuff going on in the background, you know, poor procurement of PPE, mismanagement, poor leadership, poor communication, staffing issues. And then you create, you know, a hero team, a potential hero team to help stabilize, you know, our communities. Awesome. That Avengers assembled. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. Right. And so that's cool. I was on board, happy to help. And then I worked on it. It was a seven week project before they got rid of the nurses um, and just allowed the doctors to continue on with it. So the team was compromised of a respiratory therapist, a critical care nurse and an anesthetist. And we worked 12 hour shifts, um, obviously days and nights. And we had pagers and anytime, anytime there was a code, um, because it had to be protected in your, in your little, in our little PPE that we did procure, it had to be protected and our team would go and stabilize and do CPR, do the blood work, run a normal code blue protected. So in my seven weeks, I only, and, and again, there are different shifts. There are different, you know, this is just my experience. I only dealt with maybe three COVID patients. The rest were, um, you know, oncology codes, code blues, and we were any code that happened, we came regardless because it should have been protected because you have to assume that someone could be um, infectious. Yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah, in the seven weeks, I only dealt with three that had to go to ICU fully tubed and were confirmed COVID. So to me, I was like, hmm, that's, that's a very interesting, you know, this, I'm not, this isn't matching up with the narrative, you know, and, and although there's so much circulating fear and anxiety, I was just, something still didn't sit right. So I was like, well, this is interesting. Yeah, and so then I the, learned. For the listeners, uh, mm-hmm. Tiffany means that, that seven weeks coming from April up until June time of mm-hmm. 2020. So mm-hmm. in those seven weeks when everything was really, really bad, you know, the world was on fire. We just learned about COVID crossing uh, borders and the world going into lockdown. So this is not over her whole um, time working as a nurse Mm -hmm. during the COVID pandemic. This is just during those seven weeks on this special. The acute, the beginning, the acute stage. So yes, absolutely. And then I learned an interesting fact from one of our anesthetists and who, who told me that the doctors um, on the team are getting paid $3,000 a 12 hour shift. And I was like, that, that doesn't sit well with me. That to me seems almost like a, a, a bribe. Like it just doesn't seem right. However, um, you know, doctors in Canada historically have been underpaid. So I was like, Hey, like, you know, if we've got the funds, it's worth it. 
that's fine. But when the program continued seven weeks post June uh, without nurses and just for the doctors and the numbers weren't there, I, to me, I was like, well, there's coming from the background that I come from um, in education. um, I was like, there's bias. That's a big room for bias there. There's, there's financial incentive there. So, you know, so I started to put some pieces of the puzzle together. I was like, I'm not seeing what I'm, what's representing in the news happening I'm our doctors are being incentivized and I, I do apologize that this offends any doctors and not every doctor is the same right moving forward we can't stigmatize and generalize everyone in the same grouping, because that's that that is where we foster division, um, but I would say a, a large majority were being financially incentivized. And this can be backed up with documents um, showing the pay rates in Ontario of doctors that volunteer in the ICU. This can be, um, you know, um, this can be substantiated with the uh, COVID incentives that doctors in the States are getting. I think it's somewhere upwards of $14,000 every time they put someone on a ventilator or they mark it down as a COVID death. So to me, I was like, well, there's biased. So that's how I rule out bias. That's how my brain works. And um, just to play uh, very quickly, just to play devil's yes. advocate with mm-hmm. the um, ICU shifts and extra mm-hmm. pay for that. Someone yes. might easily turn around and say, yeah, but the thing is, this is doctors giving up their own potentially free time and pulling extra shifts doing you know 24 hour days or what have you because they're trying to help out and it's reasonable to expect that hey if you're helping out from your own free time and it is something that's a high stress environment it is something that's an environment that uh is potentially dangerous then you know it's reasonable to expect uh, some kind of compensation but for anyone listening that that's a reasonable assumption to make thousand percent agree a thousand percent you cannot deny that and we know some people um, from the canadian system nurses across um, healthcare are paid the same Um, and when you become a critical care nurse you have to take so many extra certifications and learning how to run life support in a ventilator is an acquired skill that you're right i really do think icu nurses people working in icu should get paid more same with the emergency department it's just a different skill set but so you're right people do deserve to be incentivized they do deserve to be rewarded for their bravery absolutely those are very um, good frameworks for us to foster and believe in um, but my issue was that um, this is this pay of, of anywhere from 150 to 400 dollars an hour as a physician going into the um, ICU was not nurses weren't getting this and I guess who was training the doctors the nurses so right off the bat, I was like, well, this makes no sense. You should be rewarding nurses that are training, training these doctors and how to work in ICU. So but what they exactly were you guys training them to do? Because again, oh, exactly. anyone listening to this will think that it, get, really, come on, the doctors are going to be trained for the ICU before they mm-hmm. step onto the ward. Come on, yes. Tiff, you're blowing smoke now. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so it's um, doctors and we all get a general, same with nursing um, and med school, we all get a general overview uh, of what ventilators, critical care is, you know, but until you work it, uh, until you develop the skill set, until you learn how to titrate, you know, 15 different medications at once to keep this patient in a biochemistry rich environment, um, whether it be um, alkaline or acidic, whatever you're trying to manipulate, it, it takes years. Like it honestly takes years to perfect the skill. So it's not that doctors don't have the intelligence to do it, is they don't have the, the real world experience of doing it. And you can study all you want. You can do practice scenarios all you want. 
everybody's body's different and it's up to that's what makes critical care nursing so amazing is that you every day you're looking at blood work and you're working with your team and saying how do we adjust how do we do this you can't just jump in on that it takes so long and that's what those nurses because um and i'm not here to downgrade the role of doctors they're so valid in healthcare but nurses are your little you know your worker bees at the bedside you know i in so many nurses if they're listening they can attest to the fact that you know you've reminded a resident or you've reminded a doctor are you sure you want to prescribe this like this is you know they're anaphylactically allergic to this or you know this time last time we did this this is what i observed so you know to just it was kind of like a bandit approach just throw doctors in but there was no foundational or no foundational exercise, no foundation framework, no education session. It was just nurses are going to train doctors, but nurses are not going to be compensated. And nurses are not also going to be supported by supporting, by creating an, another workforce of ICU nurses. So that's what I mean. So you're not wrong to, to, to say that. And for people listening, well, Tiffany, that makes no sense, but it's, it's just, it's not applicable without, without practice. You can't just jump into critical care. It is impossible. It is so overwhelming. There is so much to consider. And that is why they didn't make it the goal of the doctors to train the other doctors they asked the nurses to train the doctors but didn't compensate the nurses right and or not only did they not compensate the nurses um, as a bunch of critical care nurses we advocated to our, our governments our provincial and federal governments to start training um, frontline to start training frontline ICU nurses like take kids that are almost out of school or nearing the last you know semester and start putting them in a year of training and they never did that they just threw money to the problem. And that created a virtue signaling of saying from the, from the politicians to say, well, we're throwing money out. We're yeah, but with no real plan, just like when they give millions of dollars to the indigenous community, but they have no plan for it, no accountability, no system to verify, no ethical framework. They did the same approach to, to ICU, no framework at all. Interesting. Yeah. And then moving on from the rapid response team that you were part of, how was it? moving into the summer months where there was a definite lull in COVID numbers in hospitalizations and whatnot and then moving back into the following winter in uh that would have been December of 2020 yeah. that year right how yeah, how October. how was it, was it for you guys moving back into then um I can't even describe it because you're not seeing what the media is portraying, right? And what you're seeing on the inside is delayed cancer screenings, you know, delayed surgeries and, and for no justification. And then you're looking around your coworkers and you're like, why aren't we speaking out against this? Like, why aren't we addressing the fact that there are more, there are more uh, mental health and suicide attempts in ICU on ventilators than COVID patients. Why aren't we speaking out against this? Because I'm not seeing it. But I also won't deny that we did have about two, three waves. And um, we're not here to discuss what we what we believe COVID to be. Um, but we did see two, three waves of COVID. But also it lined up with normal flu season, right? So it's like you're, you're sitting there and you're trying to understand what is going on here you know, and, and and why aren't we publicly, you know, having conversations and open debates about risk benefit, you know, locking down hospitals without increasing capacity, like we advocated, but just throwing doctors into ICU when you want ICU nurses that are stretched, burnt out, already underappreciated to train these doctors, but you're not willing to train nursing students to jump into this, you know, give them a one-year program, or you're not willing to tell the public, the hospitals at a lull, you know, let's, 
let's, you know, get our cancer screenings back up or let's um, identify two, three hospitals in the region to be COVID dominated. And then the other hospitals have to pick up the lockdown slack. They have to pick up the cancer screenings, the missed surgeries, nothing was happening and nothing matched what we were living and in the media. And it, so it was like, you really feel like you were in a different universe watching it and living it. This element of things not matching with the what you're seeing in the media to what you had in hospital is something they really, mm-hmm. really want to get to. But mm-hmm. this this thing that you 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 bring up, this idea of, hey, look, why don't we separate out a few hospitals for COVID stuff? And then we're yeah. going to do a few hospitals where we can continue relatively normal care so that we don't have this massive drop-off of misdiagnoses of cancer, yes. heart patients. Because yes. one, one of the big things that we saw uh, or that you see in, in the UK um, is that there were a lot of patients who had other issues, other conditions who were afraid to go to hospital one because of the fear of potentially something at the hospital and two, because they heard that the hospitals were so overrun. And I'm not saying that they weren't. I have Mm -hmm. friends and family that work in in healthcare in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And obviously you are there as well. Um, And there were times where in the UK um, that the wards were so full that people were on gurneys uh not on a ward right that that is definitely a thing and we're not here to deny that but no no this could have potentially been aided by separating stuff out and preventing other people from having other issues whether it might be heart or whether it might be cancer strokes strokes. exactly yeah yeah so um was there ever any talk about this at your hospital or within your senior management teams? Because I mean, if you're selected, that's uh, yeah. and that no, that's it. That's the problem. You you would bring about in team meetings, like, hey, why aren't we doing this? Or you know, we we would write to the premier um, and Justin Trudeau, you know, why aren't we training nurses? Here are here are interventions, and that's the thing. Met with total silence. And it's like, you know, we can, we can agree to disagree. We can view different spectrums of what COVID is. But the point is that the basic hallmarks of our democracy were bypassed. And that is not something to be quiet about, you know, because you're talking about how can we openly work together um, and create solutions that wasn't encouraged? How can we reevaluate? Uh, you know, we've tried this method, not once, twice, three, what Canada's on their fifth lockdown and nothing's changed, right? Why haven't we created public debates of both sides? Why aren't we sharing resources, knowledge? You know, why are we sharing just pieces of the puzzle? Like, you know, 100 people died of COVID, but like you said, now it's coming out that, oh, 100 people died of COVID, but 98 of those 100 had five or six comorbidities. So then why wouldn't we change a target approach to increase, you know, society's health, mental well-being, spirituality, nutrition. And that's that's what I mean. There's been so many things that we've just missed the mark. And some of it could be because, you know, you, you know there was a fear-based uh, logic to it and we just weren't sure. But at one point, we need to take a step back and create panels of advisors. We need to do all of these things to restore democracy, to restore the faith in healthcare, and none of it was done. And that's not something that we should be quiet about because look where it has led us. And I can, and I can, like I said, I'm not here to deny that there weren't waves in ICU. I'm, I'm not. That, that would be terrible to say that to the nurses that have pulled up their socks and worked their butts off and same with the doctors. However, I would challenge any nurse listening to this. Tell me if that you're, if at one point you didn't have more mental health emergencies or suicide attempts or domestic abuses, X, Y, and Z, delayed cancers, um, the, you know, which increases the acuity in your ICU than you did COVID. And I don't think any nurse in this country or this world could deny that. 
And that is not okay. That is causing concern for you to stand up and say, these lockdowns are far devastating than COVID or, you know, X, Y, and Z is, and, you know, we need to get back to transparent data shading. We need to get back to uh, informing the public and seeing what their opinions, but none of that, none of these simple things that we usually do were, were put into place. They were all completely ignored, demonized, you know, and that is like, that to me should make all of the hair on your body stand right up because it's not okay. Uh demonization of any of the talk of if you were to say anything that was contrary to the narrative for mm -hmm. me is really worrying as you know mm -hmm. uh, if you're unable to talk about it is that not in itself inherently unscientific because Thank science you. is to question and to find answers for the question mm -hmm. and to study and investigate but yes. Uh, are there any uh, is there anywhere we can look up the the stats the statistics behind those ICU admissions that you mentioned because I think that's that's super important it's, it's one of the things that's now coming to light uh, in the Netherlands uh, and in the UK where x amount of people who are in the hospital are actually there for other things and they just happen to pop positive for covid from the PCR test um so th th those people that you're talking about that happen to be there because of suicide attempts uh, or have to be there because of domestic abuse or some other reason mental, mental health, health issues yeah. um is there anywhere within the canadian statistics that someone could dig deep and find out hey actually during the period after the the first wave in that july august september time there were more people in the icu for xyz or during a lockdown uh, there are more people in the ICU for these other reasons, or is that quite hard to come by? Is that it's, something that's more going to be a personal experience on the wards? For now. Yeah. For now, unfortunately in Canada and specifically, I know other countries um, have started um, in Canada. It's still very hush hush, but I know the research is coming. Um, and I, I know this because I, I liaison with a couple of big organizations, one being the Canadian Health Alliance and the other one being the Canadian Frontline Nurses. And so we all liaison in, um, with big names like Dennis Frankel, who's uh, you know, a physicist and he does tons of studies. So it is, those conversations are happening about bringing light to all of that. But as it stands right now, this is part of the information censorship that we are trying to combat um, because people, the general public deserves this information to make informed consent. And that is why we're sending up because a lot of people have not been given informed consent. A lot of people would not be taking the stance that they were in if they had all of the facts on the table, right? So it's not here yet in Canada, but I would, I would, it is coming, it's emerging. We're liaisoning with some big groups, some people that are heavy into research that are starting to ask these questions to do this research in Canada. Um, but I will tell you, it's interesting. One thing that is very visible in Canada, and it's kind of annoying, it's that they're able to tell you who's unvaccinated and who's, who's unvaccinated and vaccinated in ICU. So it's like, they're able to do it. They're able to tell you that, that people have five or six comorbidities because they're already able to tell you about vaccination status. So it's just, they're controlling the data that they want to release. So it, it's coming out. It will eventually come out. It's just a slow process for Canada. Yeah. I think uh, the statistic out of the US was something like over 90% of people uh, who died of COVID-19 on the ICU, I think it was, had four or more comorbidities. comorbidities. And that's, yep. that's also a very important statistic to, to highlight because it mm -hmm. also highlights a, a major way that we could potentially Mm -hmm. identify these people and potentially yes. identify risk factors that we could try to reduce the impact of and i mean the the other element is there was also 
ridiculously high percentage of people who had low vitamin D. Now that yes. can be because of lockdowns or what yes. have you. There are obviously yes. all these other things that yes. factor into it. And generally speaking, people have lower vitamin D. And as as someone, uh, as a kind of person myself, I've got lower vitamin D. Hey, ho, it is what it is. I live in the Northern Hemisphere where there's not as much sun. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, there are these elements as well where, if you spoke about it, mm -hmm. then you were demonized and you were called yes. a denier of the situation. Yes. Tiffany, yes. how dare you say there are yes. other factors that go into this, but hold yes. on a minute, four or five comorbidities, isn't that important? Hold on a minute, lack Thank of you. nutrition, isn't that Thank important you. to bring yes. up? Obesity, obesity was one of the biggest risk factors. And from my lived experience, now I don't work predominantly just uh, an ICU work. We are ICU overflow in my unit, but being, I was in charge quite a bit, not always, but enough. And so I would sit on the bed flow meetings uh, in the hospital. And uh, I would say like morbidly obese, some of the COVID patients, cause we had to prone them and they, an ICU, and it would take like six or seven people to prone them because of their, their body mass index. Um, uh, size. So yeah, that, that's another, like, and that research is all starting to come out across the world that, you know, are we going to sit there and say, Oh, because you're fat, you're the reason I, no, no. But it's like, how about we look at, okay, guys, you need to get outside for 45 minutes, start walking, start taking accountability for your health. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's mandate exercise. Let's mandate vitamin D let's mandate, um, you know, community programs where people start, you know, honing in on their trauma, like none of that was done. And it's like, but regardless of where you stand on COVID and regardless if you're demonizing me, these are just good public health measures to have anyways, because, um, you know, we're thinking these unvaccinated people to burn to healthcare. Well, to be honest, it's people that have all these comorbidities that could be the burden on healthcare, but I'm not sitting there and pointing fingers. That's not what nurses do. That's not what healthcare professionals do. It's like, how can we empower you? And one basic thing the politicians in our leadership could have done is that exactly it. Vitamin D, exercise, social connection, meditation, prayer, whatever you need to. But if you've got four or five comorbidities, we are going to do a bit of a target approach or you are going to be at a higher risk category. So we're going to push out, you know, information to that group. We're not going to demonize. We're not going to stigmatize. You know, I'm not here to say, you know, because you're overweight, you don't deserve a, an ICU bed. That is just insane to me that I keep hearing this. You're unvaccinated. You don't deserve an ICU bed. Like, so the thing is, yeah, we, we, we need, we, there's so much that we could have done. And instead what we're living is the people that are speaking out, trying to advocate for the basics of public health measures, um, are, are being named as, you know, like these science deniers. And it's like, I don't understand that. Like, science denying regardless if you believe in COVID or not or regardless of where you sit in the COVID narrative losing weight is the very basic healthy thing that you can do to not stress your system to not put your risk factors through the roof and like you said it is being shown and proven that most people who died of COVID were had four or five different comorbidities so a target approach not a target approach that demonizes these individuals that empowers them and would have been a very reasonable thing and I can attest to the fact that a lot of the COVID patients on ventilators were morbidly obese or severely obese or severely diseased. That's just a fact. Of the ICU doctors that I've spoken to to date, um, I remember a conversation with one where he, he said outright, like, I've only had one patient that was not obese and they were severely underweight, mm -hmm. um, which again, 
can go the other way in terms of comorbidities mm-hmm. but otherwise they were they were mostly obese or severely overweight people and mm-hmm. this is not to fat shame before never know, someone never, tries to right. cancel culture whatever yes yes um moving on from that then how was it during the peaks of the COVID waves for you guys on the wards? Because I think that's also something important to highlight as to anyone listening, it probably sounds like we're rallying against the healthcare system as yeah. it stands today. And that's not no, the case. We both work case. in healthcare. Yeah, and worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed if things go back to normal, you'll yes. be back there too. Um, <laughs> you know, was it mostly unvaccinated people because since april or let's say march of 2021 slowly but surely people were getting vaccinated then you were able to see a bit of a difference between the two how was it for you in this last year oh so um i did not i've never understood the whole the whole alignment or complete stance of saying there are more unvaccinated individuals in icu than vaccinated I never understood that because there was no system of reporting at the beginning. There was no way for people to, to check. There was none of this. So I don't understand how we could have aligned so strongly in a narrative that was not proven because there was zero structure or system put in place to propagate um, that narrative. Um, so, and, and then my lived experience is I did not see more unvaccinated uh, versus vaccinated um, uh, COVID patients. And when I got terminated the week I got terminated, there were only, um, I can't, I can't name that where I used to work for reasons, but, um, we're an organization of seven hospitals and two of two of the seven hospitals are acute, big acute care settings with a lot of services. And so we took the blunt of, of COVID patients, um, as well as we had one other sister hospital. So three for the region, three big hospitals taking on COVID patients. And we have an a catchment area and Canada works, um, in terms of funding based on a catchment areas. So our catchment area was 1.2 million. So the, just to give people stats, so 1.2 million, and yeah, there's, there's the hospital I worked at, plus two other hospitals that would offload COVID patients. So three major major hospitals for an catchment area of 1.2, seven patients for COVID in my hospital. And this three. was October, November of. time, yes. 2021, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys went back into a lockdown? We did, yeah. When did and you go seven. back into yeah. Oh God, we've had, we've had so many. I can't even, we've had like literally five or six lockdowns. But so, after, after you were terminated, so from uh, November yeah. to now, you guys have been in a lockdown as a result, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah but the yeah. week I got terminated last week. So yeah, I guess the last week of November yeah. and I know this cause I was on bed. I was at bed calls, um, seven, seven COVID patients in total that, that that's including not just ICU that's including um we have like a, a COVID floor like just for patients that don't require ventilators that are just still struggling seven and so I can't I can't uh, speak for the other two hospitals because I, I didn't have their stats but that's still to be terminated um and to lock down the public which as we know has far devastating effects over seven patients and also remember November on October this is normal flu season for us yeah. We, we would see influenza normally uh, group nursing homes would not allow their residents to go back if they're an outbreak. Like, so again, we're not here to deny what we're here is to bring um, awareness of the, the steps and processes that were completely bypassed or ignored. And when you try to speak of them, try to understand, try to exercise critical thinking through debate, um, completely, you were, you know, Shut you were down. then 
completely. And that's not okay. That's something that we can never allow again, because it has gotten us where we're at. And, and, you know, seven in my hospital, <laughs> like how, how that's it's, it. It baffles the mind that the steps that were taken and the resulting terminations of people like yourself. And uh, for anyone listening, uh, the reason for termination was vaccine non-compliance, right? Yeah. yeah. We're allowed to say that. Yeah, we are yeah. definitely. Okay. And non-disclosure, just not refusing to disclose your status period. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, that's what it is for you know, your personal medical um, rights, personal medical privacy, uh, that thing that we're both taught in healthcare doctors are taught in healthcare that medical privacy is the Number most one, important thing the right? most important well, yeah, yeah. And do no harm and all the rest of it um <laughs> but okay and then the the shocking thing there in in all of this is the fact that at every step of the way it seems like the responses from governments across the world from world. The provinces across the world have been mm -hmm. to shut everything down and mm -hmm. lock people up and mm -hmm. it's counterintuitive when the information comes out that actually a healthier lifestyle benefits mm -hmm. massively and massively. i think it's important to mention as well it's not impossible for a fit and healthy person to one end up mm -hmm. in the icu with covid or have a serious disease as a result of covid or have long COVID. I, I know yes. very fit, healthy people that have unfortunately yes. um, suffered with it. So that's, that's yes. by yes. no means are we saying that the only reason you get it is if you've got these four or five comorbidities and that's it, wipe off. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Not but at all. Not statistically at all. speaking, you're yes. at such a low risk by these yes. healthier lifestyle choices that yes, were neglected. And if anything worked against you being able to do because if you're locked up you can't get out you can't get your vitamin mm -hmm. d you had mm -hmm. an hour some countries were an hour to go out and do exercise and that yes. was your allowance yes and and that you're right and that with the psychological um manipulation the psychological trauma and and just in that alone you know that pressure that anxiety amongst everything else that's happening and then to to be told that you know yeah you have an hour to do this or to be told that you're not essential so your job is on hold and you're not going to get paid like all of these things it just it's not okay it's not okay and and there have been so many check-in points for me that have gone completely ignored and then that's what forced me to um you know, in terms of forced me to awaken because I was like, whoa, there is something much larger at play here because it just doesn't make sense. And the fact that you're trying to bring awareness and trying to advocate for things like informed consent, normal public health measures, you know, increasing your exercise, like you said, social connection, because that's your support and is, is being, is being played out to be, you know, COVID denier, or it's like enough of the stigmatization enough of that, that doesn't help us evolve period. And and it, it's, it's like, we've only, you know, filtered ourselves into this one lens. And like you said, this is how science actually works is we question, we break apart, we, we evolve, we grow from it. And those basics have been completely ignored, completely bypassed. And it's like, 
that is not okay. And then you're right. It's and when we talk about certain themes, you know, people, you're right. Like, I'm happy that we're, we're talking about, we're not here to deny it. We're, we're, we're bringing light to that because there are people that have been healthy, have ended up in ICU too. Like, you know, and, and, and we're not, we don't have to get into the topic of the vaccinated versus the vaccine uh, unvaccinated. But again, it boils down to informed consent, freedom of choice and real-time data, you know, and, I'm not seeing that. And if you're not seeing that, you have to speak out against it, especially in a position of, of healthcare, of leadership, because the, we worked so hard for the community to trust us, to build that relationship and we're allowing it to be destroyed. And that's not okay with me. And that has far greater consequences um, than all of this because delayed screening, people not coming in because they don't trust. I have had so many messages, um, people reaching out to me, telling me their lived experience in the hospital system. And it's enough to bring me to tears. Like people going 36 hours without pain medication and their palliative, um, people going two days without water, um, all of this stuff. And it's, it's so wild. And people telling me that, you know, they were stage three cancer and now they're terminal because they couldn't get their screening or, you know, it's like, and all of these things. And it's like, at what point do not do a risk benefit analysis of even yourself as a human? And you're like, mm -mm, something's not right here. Something's, but I'm, I'm, unfortunately I'm seeing a lot of really amazing things, but we still have a lot of work to do. And it's bringing awareness and fostering open communication about what's truly going on while not feeding into polarization, while not feeding into stigmatization, while not feeding into, you know, this versus this, that this, that doesn't help. Like, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's the reason for the open forum here. So for, yes. for people to, freely be able to talk about one the lived experience and two the things that are going on and i think something mm. really important for us to to highlight here is one thing that you mentioned there the, the real-time data because we have to look at the signals everything here is so new we've got this modification uh we, we got this sars covid 2 uh virus uh covid 19 it's brand new like you said i also believed in the lockdowns and the necessary route the necessary evil let's say right at the beginning of mm -hmm. keeping everyone in their homes and whatnot i was scared to go to work my old manager Same. could tell you i was a proper piece of shit about it like yes. guys Same. i'm not coming in until you get that ppe sitting yeah. back and like no 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 no. you guys need to secure this stuff before i get in there because i'm not risking my health blah 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 yeah real real fucking sour puss i was uh, oh but, say send me too i was mask up we're six masks you know yeah. being a bubble i was i was on board and yeah, then seven weeks everything changed <laughs> seven weeks everything changed for you for me it was the fact of uh i also uh aside from uh working physiotherapy i also have a degree in physiology and one of the things that we looked over in human phys uh was the process for drug manufacturing vaccine manufacturing and why there are these long processes behind yes. it Chem, uh, chemistry for biology why we need to see the long-term effects and seeing something pass in six months where in the trial phase they uh, even stopped partway through to vaccinate the uh, placebo group or portions of the placebo group mm -hmm. for their benefit what have you that mm -hmm. irked me massively irked me and then also mm -hmm. coming in contact with people and nothing happening or what have you yeah. um, but it's paying attention to these signals that we have in the mm -hmm. data because those signals, scientifically speaking, should be things that we should explore. So when we have a signal of, hmm, loads of comorbidities, that should be something spoken about and explored. When we have a signal of, hmm, these nutritional deficits, if we can improve those, is there something there? 
if there's a signal of, hey, these countries in Africa seem to be using this medication, this (laughs) Voldemort of medications, ivermectin, that he who should not be named, they all seem to be having magic numbers. Why is that? Is it because they're you know living this forestation life was you know i've I've literally heard that because they're living outdoors blah 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 that's what it is i just thought to myself that is that is ridiculous you've you've literally just seen a picture from a unicef advert and assumed that's all of africa are you are you are you you insane uh cognitive dissonance right yeah the the, it's outright denial of the things that are in front of your face, the, the lived experience versus what you're being told and shown in yeah. the media. And the media is something that we've not yet touched on. But but yeah, as a scientist, as someone going through a PhD at the moment, you yeah. very astutely need to look at indications in the data, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I, I don't like, and that's why even like we talk about bringing awareness to this and people automatically want to group you in and we, we, we're not going to do that anymore because it doesn't help anything. So I'm not here, you know, to group, but I, I, I am, I'm getting my PhD. I have a 4.0 in nursing research. Like I, I like to think that I'm well-versed in research, still learning, but you know, to, to make a comparison to ivermectin, like I'm looking at people and um, I'm not downplaying, you know, what they're going through. I'm not downplaying their lived experience. I'm not downplaying their fear, but I want them to see, like you said, the real-time data, ivermectin, real-time data won a Nobel prize for, for, for its, its abilities to heal in 2015. And we're going to group it in as a, de- a horse dewormer. I'm like, are you for real? Like that, that is, you know, and then, and not just that, fine, fine. You don't want to believe me about the Nobel prize in 2015, go do your own research, see what resonates within you. <laughs> ivermectin was ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, vitamin A, B, C, D, zinc, um, quisertin, a bunch of other supplements and bite medications were handed out in packets. And I can send this to you after, after this, um, you can share it, uh, of countries in South America. And I forget the two countries off the top of my head. I think Peru is one of them. And I they think even Peru, had a, a video of it with one of their ministers talking about what they're giving out. What they're giving out, they're literally giving their citizens this stuff out. And and how is it that a, uh, not necessarily a third world country, but a poorer country than the first world countries did these early interventions, which included ivermectin and came out on top. So how you, so you want me to, to, to align with a narrative, but you're not willing to break it down or treat me with respect or consider or have an open-minded. And so then you want me to just blindly follow. I don't work like that. And a lot of people don't work like that. So, and, and unfortunately what's been happening is with the media and we'll get more into that. It automatically loops anyone who's questioning the narrative into this other category. And then it just further perpetuates the divide. And it's like, we're not here to divide. What we're here to talk about is the hallmarks of democracy, the hallmarks of scientific evaluation and methods has been bypassed. And that is something that we must bring awareness to and ivermectin that was given in countries that are poorer than the first world countries fared better ivermectin won a nobel prize in 2015 american frontline doctors which um um, which i've watched a lot i've been in communication with they treated a lot of their patients uh, their covid patients with ivermectin and they were able to get them out of the hospital that is lived experience with minimal bias because these doctors are not being incentivized these you know and it's like you and it's you break down the research guys ivermectin is $40 a ventilator to the province is anywhere from 7 to 14,000 dollars a day you got you have and that's how we rule a bias you got to sit down and do pros and cons with bias where are you buying so, ivermectin for $40 it's a lot cheaper than that eh it's cheap it's way cheaper than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's cheaper. Oh, I know. I'm yeah, talking yeah. about like shipping and everything. It's like, oh, 40, okay. like, to, okay, it's, like okay. it's, it's like so reasonable. Yeah, yeah no, it's even yeah, cheaper yeah. than that. And that's no. the thing. And it's like, and then, but then you take it another step. So why is it anti-parasitic drug working 
on COVID. Interesting. So that's, and that's how you do research. And you know what? It's, it's, yes, I'm grateful that I come from my background and that's wonderful. Am I better than anybody else? Absolutely not. I just have the tools to do research. And so you break and you start by doing your own research and you know what it is. And unfortunately we're here because of our society and we've allowed ourselves through instant gratification that identifies our self-worth. You know, if you read just the abstract of an article and you don't see something you like, you move on. No, go down, go down to methods, go down to bias. And then you read it in the first five words that you can understand, you highlight, you stop what you're doing because you no no longer understand what you're reading and you go learn. So put down the Netflix, take accountability and start doing your research. Yes, I have a PhD and I've had so much experience doing research, but it's also up to everyone to be accountable because this is not just about our lives. It's not about us going back to normal. It's about us evolving from this and learning. And that will not happen if you don't take accountability for yourself. And taking accountability is learning how to do research, take a course, put down Netflix, put down the bonbons, you know, stop meeting your friends for an hour on Saturdays, put the work forward. And if you're not, then please don't expect me to take the one lens approach. And so much so that I got fired over it. And it's, it's just been like, I'm so grateful though. Like I've learned so much, but it has been a very interesting reality to be living. Oh, absolutely. The, the reality check from just how comfortable people are with, Mm following orders is a little bit disturbing and i i think part of that is to do with the messaging that we've seen the messaging that we've seen across both social media from our world leaders who are supposed to be the people we've elected to look out for us in our best interests Mm -hmm. to the healthcare professionals that have blindly gone along with this now you've mentioned the american uh the uh frontline covid care people american frontline doctors you've uh, mentioned the the nursing equivalent yeah friendly nurses there are some healthcare professionals that are speaking out and bringing awareness to this but it 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 feels like it's so few and far between and there mm-hmm. are very many that are happy to go along with yep. doing as they're told and following the protocol and ventilating mm-hmm. or in the u.s using remdesivir which is oh like- remdesivir I, I can't even remdesivir so i'll i'll um and and, and people not not only they're not doing their research and not looking at other sources of, of research and, and this is not this is not an opinion piece this is not a you know, um, up to interpretation, a testimony is a testimony, a a testimony that is logged in front of Senate or that is logged in front of an entire appeal or grand jury, whatever, that's real, that there is no, that's a real testimony. So American Frontline Nurses founder, um, the entire team in American Frontline Nurses, by the way, shout out, these women are hero, women to men are hero, heroes, and the founder, Nicole Storick, I will say her last name wrong, and she went on, testified between the weeks of January 17th, I believe, to January 26th and it's on record and she testified because she was one of the original nurses that got sent to NYC to help um, while the COVID crisis there because it was a hot zone and she whistle blew against what was truly happening and that's what led her to found this organization and so she is also a biochemist by trade as well and she is now it's recorded it's testimony where she explains that remdesivir and her lived experience was killing patients um, 50 to 75 percent more likely to kill a patient 
because it puts them into multi-organ failure. And like, that's log testimony now. Like I, it was in front of Senator Johnson, I want to say. I might yeah, be off Ron a little Johnson's, bit. Ron yeah. Johnson's uh, COVID second opinions. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so it's a recorded testimony. And, and she was, she's an ICU nurse. She's obviously not no longer working. And she's created this beautiful, you know, f- beautiful institution uh, from all of the darkness. But, you know, she testified and, and her testimony was substantiated with like six or seven other experts um, that discussed that early treatment, including ivermectin, which should have been a hallmark. Um, you know, and so it's like, I know it's not being broadcasted on mainstream media, but also if you're going to align yourself and position yourself to be so close-minded, um, then I want to know, I want to ask why, please tell me you've done all your research, right? Because being close-minded is not just affecting, you know, your life. You're talking about people losing their jobs. You're talking about suicide attempts. You're talking, so if you're going to align yourself with, you know, with a kind of a dangerous narrative, um, and be so solidified in your thinking, please tell me that you've, you've looked at alternate sources of, of knowledge and resources. And one of them is Nicole Storick has testified with seven other like experts in the field saying what, you know, lived experience, and then also bring in what, you know, their knowledge and, and, you know, she compared, she, and the entire uh, audience at this hearing stood up when she compared the hospital systems to working more now like a concentration camp and I know that's a lot to wrap that's your head a around really rough um I, I, know. I, I don't know I I I know why people are using the comparisons as for some it feels like that's the only way we can go but in that yeah. instance I'm yeah I, I'm I'm hesitant to get on board with that one I can see um the isolation of people as that those first steps pre camps um i'm i can totally see that and where people are being called dirty for being unvaccinated or what have you it's very similar to the propaganda that was used prior to the camps being introduced and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it people being shut you've seen the the similarities you're seeing absolutely but the 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 concentration camp hospitals that's 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 a that's a stretch for me. I mean, I know, and well, and that's what, and that, but she said that she was comparing that to what was going on in New York, and so uh, the testimony is is I, I, is yeah. wild. I mean, it's wild. Uh, it's the, wild. The stats on remdesivir as well. The study that they used mm-hmm. to justify it actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, they saw the exact same statistics in that they were having 50% fatality rates with remdesivir. It was compared to, I want to say, three other drugs in the trial that was used by uh, those in the power that be to justify it. They also saw multi-organ failure, kidney failure, what have you. Um, And it's a known element and yet still pushed along as hey this is the drug we're going to use which again what you spoke about with financial incentives and this is very easy to find for anyone that wants to look this up and and back check this fact check this perhaps i'll put a link in in the description i think it's three thousand dollars for every uh remdesivir uh script that's written um yeah come on Uh, you're telling me there's no incentive for a hospital to say hey listen as part of our protocol this is what we're going to do. And sometimes doctors' hands are tied in the same way mm-hmm. that doctors and nurses aren't able to uh, prescribe ivermectin or HCQ. Mm-hmm. Um, are they forced then to use remdesivir, even if it's against mm-hmm. their better judgment and they know it's not going to help? Yeah. But it, and see, and like you're right, like my issue though is that like I just don't understand too, like working and so you're giving the drug. How do you not, looking at your patient's biochemistry and their lab work, how do you not identify a pattern 
looking at the drug. And I guess it's, you know, is it fear? Is it, they're so burnt out. There's so many angles that you can tackle this. And it's not again, to blame fingers and say like all of healthcare is super evil. No, but in order for us to evolve from this and grow from this, we need to understand why, why. And, and I just, yeah, like it's so obvious when you give a patient severe by all the studies coming out, like it's, it's there in your face, it's multi-organ failure. Um, and if you're giving it more than once, good luck it's forgiven it twice. So yeah, besides the financial incentives, besides the blood work, besides the common themes that we're seeing, why are we not questioning it? Why are we not, you know, and, and that's like, that's the part where we need to bring awareness to and, and, and evolve from and grow because it needs to happen. And why, why are, like, why just from severe? Why can't any other, like, why not other drugs, right? Or why not other, you know, why aren't we doing study groups and people volunteer to be part of the vaccine? Wouldn't people want to volunteer to be part of the ivermectin treatment protocol? Like, so if we could apply that one lens to the vaccine, can't we do the same with ivermectin? So, and like we said, these are the things that are being steamrolled that deserve attention moving forward. So yeah. that, you know, like Nicole Sorek said that we, so that we don't make it into concert or so that we don't, we, we get away from that paradigm of, of evolving towards the total end of genocide. And I think, I think like, I think her comparative was just that the hospitals are operating in a very dangerous, dangerous route right now. And they need to come back up for air. And that comes through honesty that comes through, you know, addressing the cognitive dissonance, addressing the, the people that had been financially incentivized, um, and and then getting and building that trust back up with the public because I know the public is not really trusting right now and I've seen it that's another thing we've been living I patients are not coming in and they're having like heart attacks at home or they're not coming in to you know they have lumps in their breasts and they're waiting till the lump opens up and is is weeping because they're so terrified right yeah so it's like look what's happened from this one thing and look how much it has a snowball effect and we're not talking about the snowball effect and we're not addressing how it became a snowball effect because if you do you were grouped into or you're you know you're a denier and and how dare you my family member died of covid and it's like it's a very interesting time right now very very interesting time yeah absolutely and i think what you mentioned there of we're not addressing why we've come to this point I think the media and social media have a big part to play in this. And okay, this is outside of our wheelhouse, as um, you know, we're, we're not journalists per se. Um, but the fact that the messaging was every day with a COVID ticker on the news cycle, with every day talking about COVID hospitalizations and hospital deaths. And then when the deaths weren't enough, they were talking about uh, hospitalizations. When the hospitals weren't enough, they were talking about positive COVID cases. And seeing this slow transformation of continual pressing with this COVID narrative, what role has that played, do you think, especially with those last few patients that you spoke about, people waiting to come into hospital, people waiting to get things checked out? Where do you think that that's played into it from, from your side? I, I think, uh, clear and simple for me, and this is just my opinion, I think the media is complacent in crimes against humanity. Sorry, you, you're there to be to represent both sides. You're there to share information. And, and you know, you're, of course, they shared COVID numbers. That's what they're expected. But did they share the comorbidities? And, and like we said, don't tell me that you couldn't do it because you were rapidly able to tell us who's unvaccinated, and who's vaccinated in the ICU setting for Canada. So it exists. The ability for us to be transparent with data exists. And it was not done. And you're seeing it now are starting to flip as more and more evidence comes out against it. And they're flipping and saying like the CDC or the who, 
oh, well, most of the people, um, you know, had four comorbidities or, you know, what natural immunity is actually is, is showing to prove, I think, what is it? 7.4% more likely to combat all the variants. Like, so it's like, but that stuff should have been shared. And if you were, if we were not um, previewed to that knowledge at the time, then a disclaimer needs to go out like that. So I think the media is a hundred percent complacent in crimes against humanity. And you need to look at who's funding the media. So it, because we made our decisions based on the media, like, right. We made, and, and we've allowed our friendships or relationships, our um, families to be broken and devastated over this and that it, we own those actions. But a lot of the actions came from a place of where they thought they were getting the information that they were supposed to be getting. And they weren't because it wasn't transparent. It was only a picture or a fraction of the story. And to me, it feels like the fraction of the story that propagated a specific narrative and not the whole the whole and if you don't have the whole picture how do you evolve how do you identify your holes how do you identify your strengths how do you learn from it when you're only seeing a sliver when it's in fact super layered and they didn't do that they did never did that and they never they've never apologized like they, like you know they've never they, they falsely reported data like and we're just like oh today the cdc or the who says okay but that's not okay they need to be held accountable right like and we're, we're allowing it to just like you know just oh it's okay they messed up and it's sweep like it they under the rug up. of yes. oh yeah they're allowed to yes. but if you or i was to misquote some figures in this <sighs> we'd be strung no. up strung out strung if up I by get bootstraps done done and if i get in that you know and that's that's what being a healthcare is you're in a position of privilege um to be looking after someone in a vulnerable state so i understand having that strong moral compass of you know you if you if you do this or if you give a medication wrong you're going to be in trouble that that makes sense but if the media does it there's no Uh, it's the media they're allowed are you familiar at all with the trusted trusted news initiative uh no no okay so what you mentioned about the information coming out from the media and the uh, only giving part of the information, only giving part of the story, yada, yada. So the Trusted News Initiative was created by the BBC in uh, partnership with organizations like Facebook, Twitter, Reuters, uh, Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. Big, big news companies. And they were created to disrupt and prevent vaccine mis or disinformation and also Importantly enough, if you look into the Trusted News Initiative in some of their first uh, press releases, vaccine hesitancy. And that, I think, is a major key because vaccine hesitancy can be a lot of different things, can be early treatment, which is something that we saw was wiped off the face of the planet, can Mm -hmm. be talking about potential adverse uh, events. Um, There's the, again, I think in Senator, uh, either Ron Johnson's uh, COVID review or another senator where there was the young child that was misrepresented in the Pfizer trial data for the serious neurological event uh, mm-hmm. and written down as stomach cramps or something mm-hmm. stomach pains mm-hmm. um stories like that that are from trial data that are factually based that are you know at risk of perjury or what have you yeah. um they were eliminated and censored. if you yeah censored if you spoke about them you'd be pulled down you'd be taken out yes. um threatened 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 yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's also something where 
people need to realize there is this massive bias with the uh, mainstream news networks, mm -hmm. uh, classical news of look, we mm -hmm. have an agenda to push. And it's not me saying it. You can look up the Trusted News Initiative yes. and find what they have said and how they are going to do it and how they are going to prevent any hesitancy or what have you. So Precisely. this is also something where... It, it swings into the role of the media in us coming to the position we're in now, mm -hmm. I think. And in Canada, um, there's been this really big push over the weekend to stop with the mandates. And yes. that has also been um, negatively portrayed in the Canadian media. Shall we put it like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it all ties in. And so Canada is a massive like revolt revolution and it's beautiful to see and it is being we use the word demonized like because that's exactly what it's happening it's the real you know truth of the, what's going on or, or, or an open uh, dialogue open forum is not being created by the media it what's happening is that it's it's demonizing diminishing um, trying to demoralize the importance of the movement and and uh, you know it, it's again when you align yourself and you're trying to bring awareness because we're in such a state of cognitive cognitive dissonance right now and we're so we're still so angry we're so divided that the second you say something you you can't even have a critical discussion you are automatically looped as you know the crazy or whatever um, white supremacy so that that's what's going on right now is that the movement is being um, you know coined as a white supremacist racist movement and so here's my stance do we systematically as an entire culture and society have to be better in racism without a doubt we have to be better you know does this movement in my opinion is white supremacy i don't think so at all and there's been indigenous uh you know members coming forward and supporting and then there's even the the freedom convoy um which is upwards of 300,000 people now have joined on instagram they with with another um account called the uh, poc's so people of color uh freedom convoy and it's it's trying to bring back truth which is what the media should be doing doing both sides for people to decide um trying to bring back truth and so it's showing a bunch of people of people of color saying i support that you know i came to this country um you know 10 years ago from ganya from uh from Africa, from Iran, whatever. And they're, they're just supporting and saying like, please don't loop us all together. We stand with you guys. Um, because right now in the media, it is just saying white supremacy, white supremacy. And again, I'm not saying that there's a couple bad apples in the movement. I'm, I, yeah, there might be, but to paint an entire amazing movement as such is like, this is we're guys, we're not learning from COVID. We're applying the same mistakes that we haven't learned from into this domain. And it's like, let me put it down for Canadians who are still on the fence. Um, and, and please, I encourage, you know, message me, message like so we can have these open conversations. But if 36,000 truckers in Canada get fired, famine doesn't care what race, religion, what culture you are. It doesn't care. Famine is famine. You know what I mean? You can't inflation, inflation, which is essentially a, a subgroup of famine. It doesn't care. It, it doesn't. If you're not from the right socio-demographic background, you will perish. And that is something that we cannot allow. We have not allowed for. We've bypassed informed consent with the vaccination because people aren't getting the real picture because of the media and large and the politicians. But this is another example. If we don't win this for Canada, thirty-six thousand truckers will be off the roads. I'm sorry. Like I am not going to stay quiet and feed into the whole white supremacy agenda when famine does not care what color, like what race, what background you are from. So it's, and this is another level of cognitive dissonance. Like, again, I'm not saying that there aren't bad apples. I'm not saying that there are, there isn't room for improvement. I'm not denying everything, but 
I am also very aware that what will happen if this doesn't fall, if this doesn't, you know, come up on top, if we don't come up on top with this. And the worst part of all of it is that this movement is rooted in love and support. And look at what's happening with the people of color Instagram page, how it's, it's taking off and uniting people. And also we've raised over $6 million for the truckers in Canada, but they've also raised over half a million in three days alone for the drinking water that Justin Trudeau promised the indigenous communities. So how can that just be white supremacy when the evidence is right in front of you? And if you try and bring awareness or you try and foster this open dialogue, you were looped into being crazy, to being racist. And it's like, it's very um, interesting because it's like, haven't we learned that this is not the way moving forward? This judgment, this lack of respect, this lack of open-mindedness, this lack of critical thinking, lack of debate has gotten us to devolve and versus evolving, right? So, and the media, the media is part of it. The media is a big part of the division and who funds the media? These are the questions that we need to start asking. It's not us versus us. It's corporations that are not being transparent and honest that are being valued in our society as institutions of sacred origin like you know the media is supposed to be an information resource the hospitals are supposed to foster democracy and scientific methods and we're not we're getting so far off of that and we're not talking about bringing this back to center and that is a problem and it's happening again with the freedom convoy and like i just can stress it again if if we don't come out on top and i'm not a doomer i have so much hope for humanity Famine does not care. So white supremacy or at all, you know, it does not care. Famine doesn't give a shit. So absolutely not. <laughs> and it it's strange to see that it's being portrayed in the Canadian media as a white supremacy movement. I've not read that looking at the Dutch mm-hmm. media or looking at the it's British media. It's really, Oof. really baffling um, mm-hmm. to see that in the age of information and technology that these media companies believe that people won't look around and that's actually something that was put out by i think it was the bbc saying don't do your own research um Mm -hmm. so perhaps they hope that people won't look deeper into it but But the whole reason that they're protesting yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely but the whole reason that they're protesting is because of the vaccine mandate where like you say 36,000 of them are going to lose their jobs now um something we're not going to dive too deep onto is the fact that in austria the head of uh, bioethics is now saying hey actually now that we mandated the covid covid vaccine we should look at mandating other vaccines as well their situation's really dire but mm-hmm. It's a, again this snowballing effect of hey, if we can do it once, we can do it again. If we can Precisely. lock down once, we can lock down five times. Now, what do you think will be the prolonged effect of these vaccine mandates on healthcare? As it's something they're currently fighting in the UK, and I've got some yeah. friends that are on the front lines trying to stop these mandates from coming in, yeah. as the NHS would all but collapse uh if these vaccine mandates come in right yeah well the the nhs itself is funded by the people but it's also or uh, the government uh, supply the funding however that's been cut over the years but um it's funded by uh tax uh tax money but um in canada unfortunately it's already happened and i don't know what the movement was like prior to the healthcare mandate coming in i do have some friends that work in healthcare in canada that they against their own will um got the jab because of the whole necessity behind it what's the long-term effect going to be of this mandate on healthcare there 
Well, and that's too, I also want to bring a lot of like attention to like uh, people that are still working in healthcare, not, not everyone's evil, right? We don't want to get back into this stigmatizing and generalizing. I know a lot of friends that had to comply because they're single parents or they have, they have a house, they have kids and and they're scared. They're scared. And they're, they're us, they're humans. We're human. And a lot of them, some of my friends have not a couple autoimmune diseases. And so they need the drugs They need the drug plan to, to sustain. Right. So yeah, a hundred percent. But so the effects of all this relates to all of this, the effects is now you have um, you so so my organization um, springs across seven hospitals and just my hospital alone, um, 200 were terminated healthcare workers that could be a mix of nurses, doctors, porters, x-ray techs, whatever you have you that sustain the hospital 200 got fired approximately when I left 300, there was 300 registered nurse positions or, or, or registered practical nurse positions open so now we fired 200 we have when I left there was 300 open positions for nurses. Um, I, I approximately 200 were off on a sick claim already, and then with retirements and everything else people had just left so how devastating is that to healthcare function, and then you a lot of people got course into doing it so do you, um, do you think that they're going to be the happiest they can be going into work, knowing that they had to do something that exactly, and I'm, I'm not saying these people are causing poor outcomes, but in terms of your satisfaction, and we know that when you're satisfied and really feeling like you're living your purpose, you're, it's going to show in your work. Well, mm. how do we, and, and so tack in now being extra, extremely dangerously short staffed, um, you know, with all of the, the mandates, people losing their jobs, walking out retirements, um, people going on sick claims. And now you just have the people, the nurses that are there, they're burnt out. They have PTSD. They're angry. And it's like, how does this, how does this create good outcomes? The team dynamics are crap. So that affects all of these things affect healthcare. And, and it's like, where's the conversation of that? Right. And right now what Canada's fighting to is trying to like equal pay and it's not a misguided like I'm happy people are standing up and are trying to you know get their voices that's great but we have far more issues devastating issues to tackle in healthcare than fair pay it's a big part of it but a lot of it is like the vaccine mandates look what they've done yeah yeah those are bigger you know what I mean like those are bigger so it's um I just I feel like we are working in the right direction to be honest I don't want to be doomy and gloomy but I I cannot downplay the fact that we have so much work to do so much work to do to bring awareness to these issues to get back to our moral compass to not allow bias to overrule you know your sense of humanity um you know and to, to rule out bias to create frameworks so we can have these open forums um to to, to debate to you know, who funds this and how does that play into financial incentives, um, you know, and, 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 and the cost risk benefit analysis of decisions from politicians that do not work in hospital settings, right? How does that affect it? And look, like the hospitals are down a thousand staff. There was one hospital in um, Orangeville that, and this was released again, this is hard evidence where they asked their kitchen staff to step in on the floors. How does that create safe outcomes for the patient? I'm sorry, where, what? There was a hospital in Orangeville that they um, that they asked the kitchen staff to step in to help. Uh, how were they even allowed? Precisely. So, how are they even allowed to do that? How are they even allowed to to touch patients? I don't know. And that's what I mean. Like, that's scary. That should never have been allowed. Like that should, you know, the community should be up in arms about that, but we're so divided in the media that we're not, we're not talking the big, talking issue. Oh yeah. Your microphone. Sorry. 
Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, that's better. Sorry, you're saying we're so divided because of the media. We're so divided because of the media that we're not tackling the core issues, right? So So what would be for you the biggest things that you would like people to take away from from this conversation? What what would be your highlights? Do your research. If you don't know how to do research, then that's where you start. You identify that I don't know how to do research and that I'm going to, whether it's take a course or I'm going to sit down and learn, or I'm going to start reading an article. And the second I highlight five words, I put this research down and I figure out those five words that I don't know about so that I can further, you know, break down this research. That's one, taking accountability, creating frameworks for you to be empowered with research and part of it is saying I don't know how to do research I don't know statistical analysis for validity credibility like and this is coming from a pace place of love like I have had so much training to be able to do this I know it's not easy I understand that but it's also your job to put down the tv put down the distractions and equip yourself to be empowered so that's one have an open mind you know, and start fostering tough decisions and, and start fostering tough conversations with, you know, people that might have an opposing view, because that's how you learn. I don't claim to know everything. Absolutely. But I can assure you that I'm willing to sit in a room and hear a bunch of different opinions to, to, to make my opinion. Right. I'm very open-minded. And if you're not, then that's some more that there's a point for you to start. I am not an open-minded person. Okay. So self-awareness, right. And, and start, going out and seeing what you're, what you're feeling, feel, think, feel, and act on that. So go out to one of these rallies and see, are there people lighting things on fire? Are people spreading hate or is it surrounded by love and go from there? So take your lived experience, take your learning gaps, empower yourself, face your demons, have tough conversations with people that have opposing views and hear them out because there might be an area for you to learn. And that is called evolution. And that is called consciousness. And that's how we propel ourselves forward. But if we're not doing any of those things, what, what is the definition? If you, what is the definition of insanity? If you continue this, to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, guys, we are living it. We are doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Lockdowns, you know, vaccination mandates, which have far more crippling effects on economies and morals and, and values on families and friends than COVID. Like it just, we need to get back to a framework of empowering ourselves and it comes from within. That's pretty much my takeaway. Fair enough. And I think yeah. I want to highlight on that research aspect. There's, there's two things. One, also learn how to appraise the research that you're reading. Yes. And two, don't just go from Auntie Sue on, yes. on Facebook because there's so much yes. crazy stuff going out there as well. There's so um, much, so I, much, yeah. I, I saw one video that was claiming to be a... Uh, microscopic view of the vaccine and it had basically the alien from um gosh what was the movie um uh, basically an alien from some uh sci-fi movie moving about in the fluid and people were taking this to be factual and it's you have to be able to discern what people are using to mess with you and um you know ascertain what's good information and Mm -hmm. usually going to a journal is a good idea using something Mm -hmm. like pubmed to look into it however there's also the uh regulatory capture the capture Mm -hmm. of the scientific studies as well who funds those studies Mm -hmm. um but another one to highlight is the difference between absolute risk and relative risk and this is something that is 
massively being manipulated at this point in time, uh, especially with the data uh, mm-hmm. from from current trials, current studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we look at the vaccine adverse events, people are then trying to compare those to what can happen in an adverse event from the virus itself. And yet, mm-hmm. when you break down the data, there seems to be a lot more that can potentially go wrong from the vaccine side. Also, absolutely. On Exactly. And, and when, when people from different, and I, I, and I, I don't downplay how confusing this is. Like I, I, I feel so much for the world right now. Like it's confusing. We're all going through our own spiritual awakening or our own type of awakening to what's going on. We are, we are living it. We are seeing the families divided. Our friends have stopped talking. Like I understand how devastating this is and how it's like, you want me to put more work when I'm depleted, I am exhausted, but it's about re-empowering yourself with the tools to never make these mistakes again, or not to never make these, these mistakes again, but to learn from these mistakes. And I, like for me, um, I share, I share a lot of, uh, information. So I shared the, um, FDA patent, uh, from the Pfizer vaccination. Again, this is to me, this is hard evidence. I did not create this. This is a license approved patent document from Pfizer. 53 pages. I leaked that. No, like no one even, people barely batted an eye. I leaked which the FIOA request, which is a Freedom of Information Act, which grants the public access to federal documents. And it was created for things like this. So it, it, through the FIO request, I've leaked the 38 page um conversation of um, Pfizer reporting to um, the FDA, um, all of their adverse effects. Again, that is not a a piece, an opinion piece. That is a hard fact. These documents are from Pfizer to the FDA. You know, I leaked the, um, the sick kids, 19 page PDF and sick kids. If for those who don't know, it's, you know, a, a top institution for children's hospital in Canada one of the top three in all of Canada. And they created a 19 page PDF on how to treat your child post-vaccination injury. So again, this is not like, this is hard evidence. And the thing, where was that shared on mainstream media? Because that's how informed consent works, right? You can get the vaccine, but here's, here's the cons. Here's what might happen. Okay, great. And if you decide to get your child vaccinated, all the best to you, that is on you. And you were provided informed consent and I can carry on with my day. But those, those things are hard facts and they're not being spoken about, right? Nurses, you know, testifying, um, you know, in front of, of different organizations, why aren't we talking about that? And that's what we need to get back to. And that's why we need to develop frameworks so that this kind of stuff never happens Doesn't again. Happen again, yeah, mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. Um, Tiffany, I really want to thank you for your time and, and talking to us. What do you think is, is, the thing that we're not looking at at this point in time that you think our attention should be going towards? Because I come from, uh, you know, an energy background and a healing background. Um, I think that well, I'm happy we talked about this and I hope people can take away from this. And if, and if they want to message me too and, and, and break down some stuff that I talked about, please, that's how we learn from each other. But I hope more than anything that we need to work on our forgiveness. And it's hard. But if we want humanity to propel forward and to evolve, we're going to have to start forgiving each other for, for, for this and on, on all spectrums. And I think that's another big thing. That's Forgiveness. beautiful. That's yeah. a nice way to, to finish up, I think. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.